seated, and if you would, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking today at Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, and if you don't have a Bible, then get one of those black pew Bibles that's on the end of every pew, and that Bible is on page 939, and you're also welcome to keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have one. We want you to be able to have a copy of the Word of God of your own uh, to, to read and to take in and to, uh, to build you up. Uh, let's read together from Romans 1. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18, even as we're looking today from 21 to 23. Here's what the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul's pen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And then we come to today's passage. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Today we're going to see that the natural tendency of fallen sinful human hearts, the kind of hearts that we are all born with, the natural tendency is to say no thank you to the glory of God and exchange it for smaller things, foolishness foolishness. Now, why would anybody change out that glory? Why would anybody look at something so glorious and say, no, thank you? Can you imagine somebody going to the Grand Canyon and saying, meh? Well, people do. And if you ever read internet reviews of beautiful places, you'll find this out. Let me read you an actual real review of the Grand Canyon from the internet. This guy says, not really my sort of thing, so I guess it's a really big canyon. If you're into canyons, this is for you. I'm more of a beach guy. And he gave the Grand Canyon one star. All right. Let's, let's look at some other ones. What about the, the Matterhorn? So this is the most famous mountain in the Swiss Alps. Uh, this review says, too tall and very cold. One star. All right. What about Victoria Falls? That's the largest waterfall in the world. Uh, it's, it's in Zimbabwe, right on the border. This, uh, this review says, not bad. Three stars. That's pretty good, right? Uh, one more, Machu Picchu. This is in the Peruvian Alps on top of a beautiful mountain, this ancient Incan site. Um, here's what someone says on the Internet. Only a mountain, nothing else to see. One star. All right. Now... Here's what's happening in this scripture, and not just what's happening in this scripture, but the scripture is pointing out that this is the natural tendency of fallen human hearts, is behold something much more glorious than the Grand Canyon or Machu Picchu or Victoria Falls or any of those things, to have a hint of the glory of God because it's displayed to everyone in the creation that God has made as the heavens declare the glory of God. The natural tendency of the human heart is to look at that glory and say, meh, I will take something smaller. I'll take something easier to handle, something that fits better into my life. No thank you. And this is ungodliness. 
where we are right now in Romans, uh, all the way from Romans 1.18 through 3.20, is a big description of the universal human need for the gospel. So that's what we're seeing right now, is why is it that Jesus had to come and die? And it's because of the depth of the depravity of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile. In these verses right here, he's mainly talking about Gentiles, mainly talking about those by that who, who grew up without the influence of the Bible, without any knowledge of what God's Word says, that the natural tendency of human hearts without the Bible is to rebel against God, to worship what is not God, to exchange the glory of God for lesser things. Now, starting in chapter 2, he's going to go and talk about those who did grow up with the Bible and say they are just as lost unless God does a mighty work of causing them to be born again and perhaps even more guilty for having greater revelation until they come to be born again. But what we have here in Romans 1, speaking mainly about those who grew up without any special revelation from God, without any knowledge of the Bible, and yet it's a universal human tendency to look, to understand something of the glory of God, and to say, no thank you, meh, I will take something else. But the first thing I want to point out to you about this is that this shows us something of the right response to God's glory. He is describing the wrong response, but you can see right there in the beginning of verse 21 what ought to be the right response of any human being to the glory of God. And what that right response is, is to honor God as God and to give thanks to God. Here's the way that he puts it, for although they knew God, by which he's talking about not having a saving relationship with God, That's, it's not that kind of knowing God, it's, it's what he described in the previous verse of having some knowledge of God that is available to everyone by beholding uh, creation, which declares God's glory. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. Now, built into that statement is, here is what is right to do in response to God's glory. Here is what everyone ought to do. Not just what everyone ought to do, but what everyone is required to do. And not just what everyone is required to do, but what everyone has been created to do. This right here is stating to you your purpose for existence. Why is it that God has made you? Why has he put you in this world? Well, the answer is to glorify him. The way that it's put in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, is, is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the way that it's put right here is that they are to honor him as God and give thanks to him. That's what you have been created for. That's what all mankind is created for. When it says here, honor him as God, some of you might have different translations of the Bible. I'm using the ESV, but in the King James and some others, it says glorify him rather than honor him. And I think that's actually the better translation of that word. This is talking about the glorification of the glorious God. That's what we've been created for, everybody. It is not adding to his glory. You can't add to God's glory. It's already infinite, what glorifying God means is not giving God what he doesn't already have. He already has everything. What glorifying God is is praising him for who he is. It's, it's not adding to his glory. It is ascribing to him the glory that's already his. 
So at honoring God, what we are called and required and made to do is to admire God, to worship God, to enjoy God. As a human being created in his image, that's your purpose in life. But our, uh, it is not what tends to happen, but it's what ought to happen. Now, as those who have been brought to faith in Jesus, we know this and we enjoy this. That's one of the, the chief changes that happens in a human heart when God causes someone to be born again, is they go from resenting the idea of honoring and glorifying God. Why, who does he think he is to try to make us all do that? And turns our hearts when we come to faith in Christ to enjoy it, to love him. Now, as those who have been saved, it, it doesn't mean that we automatically immediately glorify God completely as we ought to. That's a lifelong process of sanctification, and it's not going to be complete until we're beholding the glory of Christ by sight in heaven. But we can continue to build up and grow in this. It is our duty, it is our purpose to glorify God, to honor him. It is your greatest need. Now, this is true whether you're already a Christian or whether you're not yet. Your greatest need and calling is to become entranced with the glory of God. What do we need as individuals? You need to absolutely love and enjoy God and glorify and praise him. What's our greatest need as a church? Well, I'm sure many of us can think of lots of needs that we have, lots of potential programs that could be started if you're willing to put the work in to get those started. All kinds of things that could be improved and fixed and cleaned up and all kinds of things that you, we could do, all kinds of ways that we could uh, adjust this and adjust that. But I'm going to tell you right now, this is our greatest need at First Baptist Church in Manawan. Our greatest need is, as a church, to become entranced with the glory of God, to honor God, to glorify God from the heart, to enjoy him, to love him. And it says, and this is really part of that, but it says it explicitly also to give thanks to him. It says they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now that giving of thanks, it's, it's one of those things that it, it, it frustrates me a little bit that it's, it, it, it's so often just wrapped up in the month of November because we have that holiday in November that we call Thanksgiving. And yet... This is part of the purpose of our existence, is to be people who give thanks, and not just give thanks in an abstract way, or not just give thanks to each other, That's, that is a good thing, but to give thanks to God. That, that giving of thanks, you've probably heard me say this before, but it's not just a feeling in your heart of gratitude. I'm sure that those, out of those 10 lepers that Jesus healed on the road that day, the nine who did not turn back to give thanks, if you had asked them, do you feel grateful? Are you grateful? They, I'm sure they would have said, yes, I'm very grateful that I was healed. But there's only one who actually gave thanks, who actually turned and gave glory to Jesus, his Savior, for what he had done. So it's not just a feeling of gratitude, even though that feeling, that, that genuine heart gratitude is rare enough in itself, 
But it's an actual personal giving of thanks, and we're called to do this at all times. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks just on November 26th. No, it says give thanks in all circumstances, right? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's one of those great statements for those who are wondering, what is God's will for my life? Well, here's one thing. It is God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances, including the one where you don't know what the next circumstance is going to be. Give thanks. What can we thank God for? Well, there's always things to thank God for. Now, you may feel at certain times like, I don't have as much to thank God for right now. I have more to ask God for, which is fine. Ask God. Ask God. He, He provides. He cares. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That's good. But you always have things to thank God for. If you think you don't, then you need to search your heart because most likely you're a consistent breaker of the third commandment. What do I mean by that? God has told us in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, what does that have to do with giving thanks? Do you know who it is that has brought about the circumstances in your life? Do you know who it is who picked out your family? Do you know who it is who picked out the members of your church? It's God. And when we look at the works of God and we grumble and complain, we are taking the Lord's name in vain. And that failure to give thanks is that. But there is always much to give thanks for in every circumstance. Here's some things. If you can't think of what to give thanks for, here's one thing. Thank God for your existence. The existence of you yourself and the world that God has created and put you in. Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being. The fact that you're here and that you're alive today and breathing is something to thank God for, and it's a literal miracle. It's amazing. You can thank God for his creation design, not just the fact that there is a creation, but also for the way that God has set things up, the way that he has ordered the universe and the way that he has made you. Now get this, you can thank God even for his creation design in making man male and female in his own image. This is something that is a serious indictment of the world. The world is, especially our our current culture, absolutely not just ungrateful for God making us male and female, but rebelling against that. I I heard... uh, a Christian counselor, a biblical counselor is a better way to put that, uh, named Heath Lambert point out a while back that the main spiritual problem that lies behind transgenderism is a failure to give thanks. It is an ungratefulness, a failure to give thanks. To, to, to look at one's own body and say, this is the wrong way. That is to look at God and say, I am not grateful. I do not give you thanks for myself, for the way that you've ordered things. Ever since we heard that, we've, I, I've tried to, to uh, on a somewhat regular basis, to, to teach my daughters to thank God that he made them girls. Oh, it's beautiful. It's great. It's a thing to thank God for. And to teach our sons to thank God that he made them boys. 
That's a beautiful thing. It's, it is so good. But God's creation design all over, we can thank God for it. We can thank God for his providence. His creation is how he set up the world. His providence is how he runs it. The things that happen, the circumstances of our lives, the, the, that's what it says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give thanks for everything that happens because, because we, we don't have to thank God for someone sinning against us or something like that. But even in those circumstances, we can trust as believers that Romans 8.28 is still true, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And then in the next verse, he defines what that good is that those things are working together for, which is that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. No matter what circumstance happens in your life, you are called to thank God that he is using it for your good and to conform you to Christ. You can always thank God for his providence and the way that he orders things. You can thank God for the blessings of this life which is usually the main thing that, that people most easily think of when they say, what do I need to be thankful for? And we need to be thankful for those things. The fact that we have food to eat, the fact that we have a roof over our heads and clothes on our backs, the fact that God has given us our family members, all, all kinds of blessings in this life, the country that we live in, we can thank God for. And the men and women who have given their lives to protect the freedoms that we have in this country. All of those, those blessings in this life we ought to be thanking God for. And there's always more to think of. Always. We will never run out of things to thank God for, even with the blessings in this life. But there's also eternal blessings to thank God for, which are bigger and better. As we don't store up treasure on earth, but we store up treasure in heaven. As we've been told in Ephesians 1, that for us who believe that God has granted to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that our inheritance is secure, that he has given us the down payment of the Holy Spirit to show us that it will happen. We know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We will see every blessing in the spiritual places. We will behold the glory of Jesus. We will enjoy him perfectly forever in glorified bodies without sin. You can thank him for that in advance. You can thank God for God himself. You can thank him for who he is. And you can thank him for sharing of himself with us. My son, Ben, started this practice years ago. I'm talking about you, Ben. He heard his name. He looked up. Yes, I'm preaching. You should listen. But I'm going to brag on you, Ben. Years ago, he, Ben, as the oldest boy, he, he is consistently at dinner time. Our, um, our the guy who prays for uh, at the beginning of the meal, and so Ben started this practice years ago that he doesn't just thank God for the food and for the members of our family. Uh, that that he he thanks God that he is holy. He says, "God, thank you that you are holy." And I just think that what an amazing thing to thank God for. And so much just wrapped up in those words right there. Guys, there is always something to thank God for. John Gill, probably the greatest theologian among Baptists of all time, he said this, thankfulness follows contentment. A discontented man is not thankful for anything, but a contented man is thankful for everything. Thankfulness is a branch of godliness. None but a godly man is truly a thankful man. 
Rather than being discontent, grumbling, rebelling, and hating the works of God in his creation and providence, we are to give thanks. That's what we have been created for. Now, what is the natural response of man? Well, the natural response is not to do those things. If you're following along on your bulletin, we've gotten all the way to number two at this point. The natural response to God's glory is not to do that. Now, who we are when we are born, is, uh, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say the natural man with the natural response. This is the nature of mankind ever since the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The nature of man that is sinful and fallen, where from birth we are born with a sin nature. We are born already guilty of the sin that we, as part of all mankind, committed in our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And we are born with this natural rebellion against God, this state of the heart that is twisted and turned and does not glorify and enjoy God. It's called depravity. The natural state of man that we were all born into does not want to glorify God or give him thanks. That's the first thing that he says there in verse 21. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This is talking about what he said back in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then he says unrighteousness. What we're seeing in these verses is the ungodliness that then, when you get to verse 24, is going to lead into the unrighteousness of things like being given over to impurity. But where it starts is not just in the things that you do that are bad things on the outside. Where it starts is in the heart, in a failure to honor God, a failure to give thanks to God. And that is the natural state of man. It's a breaking of the first commandment, a breaking of the second commandment, a breaking of the third commandment, That's where these things begin, is in natural human hearts. Some people think that world religions, and I'm talking about not Christianity, but the religions that you see scattered across the world among all the tribes of the world, and that you see, you know, rock stars going off and sitting with these gurus and all that kind of stuff. These world religions, some people think that these world religions are evidence that people in all places all over the world have always been trying to respond to the light that God gives them. This is saying the opposite of that. This is saying that the natural human heart and the religions that the natural human heart sets up for itself are not a positive response to the little light that God would give through creation and through the conscience. They are a rebellion against it. They see the glory of God and they say, I will not honor it. I will exchange it for something else. They see something of the light of God revealed and they say instead, I would rather have my foolish heart darkened so that I can remain hidden and not be convicted of my sin. World religions are just showing a failure to honor God, the one true and living God whose son Jesus is our redeemer. Now, what what does that look like? Well, it looks like First of all, not honoring God, not thanking God. Of course, the, the not honoring God gets at the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
Built into that is, I am to be your God. You are to honor me. That's built into the first commandment. Not thanking God. As I said just a second ago, that's a breaking of the third commandment. It's looking at what God has done in creation and providence and saying, nope, God did a bad job. I will not thank him for that. It is, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. And that is a grumbling and complaining against God to fail to give thanks. You know, though the natural human heart is not without honor for things, it's not without thanksgiving to some things, the natural human heart will honor things like karma and the universe and Mother Earth. And here is the number one false god that the American culture of today loves to honor and to give thanks for, the inner self. Oh, that is the object of worship of our day. Who are you on the inside? Believe in yourself, honor yourself, thank yourself. That is destruction. That's destruction. Guys, that's, that is the natural way, is not to honor God, not to give thanks. And then he goes in verse 21 and says that there is pointless thinking and darkened hearts. It says in verse 21, though, although, uh, second half of the verse, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, futile, when I hear that word, I remember being a kid watching Star Trek Next Generation because I, I grew up at just the right time with just the right nerdiness to be able to, to have that word associated in my head with the Borg Collective, that resistance is futile, they would say. What does that mean, though? It means pointless. It means there is no point to it. It's going to come to nothing. And that's what God says about the thinking of natural human hearts. They became futile in their thinking. Pointless. Now, the Bible is saying here directly that other systems besides Christianity are pointless. That doesn't mean that no one can do anything good at all, that no one can accomplish anything that is positive in any sense, but it is saying that all of those things, if they are not rooted and grounded in faith, in Christ, that ultimately they're pointless. Now, sometimes those whose thinking is pointless don't realize it, probably most of the time. Sometimes those whose thinking is pointless do realize it. Uh, A good friend of mine from college, after we graduated, he, he, he went to get a master's degree in English literature, and he did his thesis for his master's on uh, these, these postmodern um, writers of, of novels, these uh, authors, and, and when he was studying their lives, I think he, he did something, covered something like 10 of these postmodern authors, and I want to say almost all of them committed suicide which is just an absolutely horrible thing to think of. But the kind of writing that they were doing was a writing that was just demonstrating in its very style the pointlessness of life that they felt. That's what postmodernism really is. It's, It's almost just a saying, everything is pointless, nothing really matters, there's no coherent system for anyone to be following. And they realized that, and they took that way out of self-murder, of saying, if this is all pointless, I don't even want to be here. What a horrible thing. What a horrible thing. What a painful thing. But I just say that to say some whose thinking is futile actually know it. They know it. 
But guys, this is saying that everyone who does not know and honor Christ as Savior has a pointless life. Now that's hard to say because we, we, we have the advantages of men like Thomas Jefferson who, boy, we, we have so much because of what he did. And yet, you know what Thomas Jefferson did when it came to Christ? He took his Bible and literally cut out everything supernatural and said, those things are not really what Jesus did. Oh, futile thinking, futile. How do I know that this is pointless? It's because in Revelation 21, Jesus, standing at the throne, the one who is seated on the throne, announces, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If you want to know what the point is, Jesus just said it. When he says, I'm the beginning, he's saying, I'm the one who made and started everything. And when he says, I am the end, he's saying, I am the point, I am the telos, I am the goal, the thing that everything is supposed to be for. And that includes you and me and every human being in all of creation. The point is Jesus, and not to know Jesus is to have futile, pointless thinking. We need to know the point because everything else is going to fall away. He connects this here to darkened hearts. That includes these hearts that we are so often referred to as, as the leaders of the Enlightenment, funny that they, they would use the word enlightenment about what the Bible calls a darkening of the heart. Well, here's the way that Jesus describes this. In Matthew 6, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What Jesus is getting at is where you point the eyes of your heart where you point the desires of your heart, that's your light source. The light is going to come in through your eyes. And he says, do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Don't point your eyes on things that are dark, things that pass away here on earth. That's darkness. He says right after this, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. If we have the eyes of our hearts pointed on created things, the things of this world, no matter how impressive those things are, those are things that are temporary and passing away, and it is futile, and it is darkness. And God calls us instead and requires us and has created us so that we would point our eyes on Christ, so that we would enjoy the glory of Christ, come to the light of Christ, rather than hiding in the darkness where we don't have to feel conviction of the sin that the light would expose. That's the natural human tendency. He says then also that they, the natural human tendency is to have foolishness that would masquerade as wisdom. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, Paul's statement here, it reminds me so much, and I just I can't see how Paul wouldn't have been thinking of this when he wrote this, of his trip to Athens in Acts 17. When Paul went to Athens, Athens was the highest height of culture in the Greek world and then in the Roman world too. 
That's why the New Testament was written in Greek. It was still the universal language of, uh, of the world at that time. And Paul walked right into Athens. when they, he, he went in and he saw and he even preached the gospel in what's called the Areopagus, the place where they had all of these statues of gods, of every god that they can think of to cover everything that they could possibly worship, including an unknown god, just to cover all their bases. And he went and it says that he reasoned in Athens with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And do you know what the word philosopher means? It means lover of wisdom. But Paul was there saying these lovers of wisdom, these worldly philosophers, they are claiming to be wise and they have become fools. They've become fools. Why is that? Well, Here's the thing. It sounds really clever to be the person in the room who says, things are not as they seem, right? It draws attention. People want to know, why why are things not as they seem? What do I need to know? You must be the person who has the wisdom. Let me hear. I got to tell you, sometimes things are not as they seem. That's true. Sometimes. Sometimes things are as they seem. Let me tell you something that is as it seems. The world is a creation. It has a creator. And the fact that it's here and it is impressive is declaring the greater glory of the creator. That's an obvious thing that is as it seems. And this is saying right here that there is so much in worldly wisdom that would just outright deny what is obvious. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Of course, you see this over and over in the, uh, in the intellectual classes and the things that they come up with. And those, those things are, can really be a draw to college students. They can be draw, a draw to other people who want to be seen as part of the intellectual class and, and the intelligentsia. But, uh, but, but guys, you've you got to know that sometimes things are as they seem. Just, I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Elon Musk, one of the smartest guys around, Right. He literally has said that there is a one in a billion chance that the, the world we're living in is, quote, base reality. He, he thinks that it is a much greater chance that we're living in some other civilization's computer simulation. <laughs> Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Get this. It is the absolute assumption of the intellectual world that everything here, including you and me, including our own brains that we're using to reason, are the result of chance. Guys, it is just obviously not true. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We could go on with lots of examples, but that's, that's the thing. This, this hiding from God, it just has to come up with all kinds of clever ways to escape the truth that look wise but are actually foolish. And then what else does the natural human heart do? In response to the glory of God, well, it exchanges it. It trades God's glory in for images. It says, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What does that mean to exchange? Well, exchange. Makes me think of taking something back to the store, right? The last thing that I remember taking back to a store was a a, uh, Brita pitcher. This uh, water filter pitcher. Now, we've, we've had several of those kinds of pitchers over the years. We like them. They're great. 
got this one at Bed Bath & Beyond and took it home, got it out of the box and said, that looks kind of tall. Held it up to the refrigerator and realized this will not fit in our refrigerator. So what did I have to do? Well, I had to just box it up and take it back and say, we need something different. Guys, that's what people want to do in their natural, human, sinful hearts with the glory of God. Oh, I see that, but that's not going to fit for me. I want something that's going to fit me better. Now, it's been said, and I think in a way it's true, that there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart. Some people say Augustine said that. He didn't. Some people say Blaise Pascal is the one who started that saying, and he said something close to that. We don't really know where it came from, but it's, it's true enough. But guys, if there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart, you need to realize that there is a big problem with every human heart, too. That it's natural, human, sinful state has that heart shriveled up and shrunken down and hardened so that when the glory of God comes up against that God-shaped hole in that heart, it doesn't fit. And the heart says, that hurts. I don't want that here. It's too big. It's going to bang around. It's going to stretch. It's going to hurt. It's too bright. I'll exchange it for something that fits better with me. I will exchange it, the glory of God that is so big and perfect and holy, I will exchange that God for something that I can bring down to my size, fit in my heart, fit in my life. And the way that that plays out and has for all of human history is in images. Saying, I will be creative, I will make something beautiful that I can use as my representation of what I worship. Now, some of us come here and we would say to this, well, this is, anytime the Bible talks about idolatry, I need to search my heart to know what it is that, that I would, would have my affection set too highly upon. That is a good searching of the heart. That is a good thing to do. When, when, when we, uh, in our own hearts, when we, when we overvalue money or uh, fame or sex or all kinds of different things, Yes, that is a breaking of the first commandment in having another God besides God. But you need to know also that it is the natural human tendency also to break the second commandment, to set up forms and systems of worship that are opposed to how God has said that he wants to be worshipped. And this says this is the natural human tendency to, to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's not a thing that anybody does anymore. Well, let me explain. Yes, it is. <laughs> it very much is. And the fact that we, we write that off as a thing people don't do anymore just makes us so blind to it, but it's just right in our faces all the time. For one thing, he's not just talking about images of man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's going through categories of creation on the six days of creation that are listed for us in Genesis 1. What he's saying is he's hinting at what he's going to get out later on, that they served the creature rather than the creator, as he'll say in verse 25. 
that, that man wants to have these images of things that you can grasp and set your eyes on and say, I can get this. That idea of an invisible, all-glorious, eternal God, I don't get that. I'm a visual learner. When God, in fact, has given us his word and not his picture. Guys, you, you, you know what's, what's interesting is that so many people who say, I, I have no religion at all, they're the people who are driving the Buddha statue industry. It's, it's all over the place. You just, you, you go to, uh, I don't want to name particular stores because I don't know for sure, but you go to these home and garden stores, there's literal idols for sale there that people buy and they put around their houses and their gardens and they say, oh, that makes me feel kind of spiritual. And there's this tendency in Christian worship to say we need images. God is just too big to grasp. We need a picture of something. That's an official teaching of the Catholic Church to use these images. It's an official teaching of Eastern Orthodoxy to use these images. And I really wish that our forefathers in this church had not decided to put images of Christ on our windows in our space of worship. Not because I think that images of Christ are necessarily sinful in themselves, but their placement in here makes us think maybe that's an aid to worship, to look at a picture when it's really not. I always just say, don't look at those. Because we serve an invisible God, and the ugly tendency of natural man is to say, I want an image that will help me worship, because God is just too big. God's glory does not fit well in my heart and my life, so give me something that I can shrink down to my size. Guys, what we need instead is God. When the glory of God does not fit in the worship of our hearts, the problem is not the glory of God. The problem is not God and who he is and how he has revealed himself in his word. The problem is our hearts. When, when the true worship of the true God does not fit with who you feel that you are on the inside, pray that God will change you. This is part of why Jesus said, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. The natural human heart does not worship this God. And by the way, God has said, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Worship is to him only. Calvin, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And when that chapter where he wrote that, he's talking about the developing of actual images, of actual works of art, works of human creativity that people all over the world in all times think up, if I can just get something beautiful and interesting enough, this will be a visual aid to my worship. It's in our hearts, and we got to root it out, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he will, he will. But the natural human heart just says, give me something I can look at. Give me something I can see. Give me something I can grasp. You know what that is? That is what the Bible calls broken cisterns. Cisterns. These big holders of water. Jeremiah 2.13 says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We need the true God, and we need to worship him in spirit and in truth and not by images. Now, what do we need, though? We need the only way to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because I've held back from you the fact that God actually does have an image of himself that he has given to us. And do you know what it is? It's Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. Guys, I have good news for you. This this passage of Scripture, it's not just here so that we can know how deeply depraved and sinful the natural human heart is. It's also here to drive us to the gospel, the solution. We're in Romans 1, but Romans 3 is coming, that he is the propitiation that God has sent by his blood. Here's what it says in Colossians 1. On your bulletin, I accidentally wrote Colossians 3, but this is in Colossians 1, and I said I'm going to start in verse 15, but I'm going to start in verse 13, so just scratch out the whole bulletin and just listen. Here's Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you hear that? We were in that domain of darkness. We were in that feudal thinking. We were, believer, you and me, we were the people who were foolishly darkened in our hearts. But he has delivered us. And I want to tell you, if you are still in that darkened thinking, if you are still apart from faith in Christ, that deliverance is offered freely to you in Jesus right now. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to glorify God, know God, if you want to be one of those who honors God and gives thanks, it must be in Jesus. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And he is the one who gives, as it says, the forgiveness of sins. I want to tell you some of the sins that Jesus died for on the cross, some of the sins that were imputed to him, counted as his, as he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Some of those sins are not honoring God, not thanking God. Jesus died for thanklessness, being futile in their thinking. Jesus died to forgive wrong ways of thinking and those who were lost in wrong religions. Jesus died for dark, foolish hearts. He died for the foolishness of your heart that you might right now just think is part of your personality. Jesus died for those who were foolish and claimed to be wise in their pride. Jesus died for idolatry. The very sin of turning and worshiping other things God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came and bore the penalty for that sin so that we could then become true worshipers of God. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Wherever you may have been convicted in these things, rejoice that Jesus is the one who gives us redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It says, as we look at him, the image of the invisible God, as we behold him now by faith, as we look forward to beholding him in heaven by sight, we can know this about Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That means he's the point. He's the point. He is the point, and he is good, and he is gracious. All of this is here to show us we need the grace of Jesus. Those who grew up without the Bible need the grace of Jesus. Those who grew up with the Bible need the grace of Jesus. Come to Jesus, the Redeemer, the image of the invisible God, the forgiver of sins. Let's pray. God, thank you that Christ is the, uh, the image of the invisible God. I thank you that you are so glorious, and I thank you that you give grace and mercy to us who were, were lost in the darkness, lost in the futility of our thinking and our foolish hearts. And I thank you that you have transferred us who believe into the kingdom of your beloved son, Jesus. God, I thank you for the redemption and the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. I pray that that would come to more people even right now who hear this good news, that Christ has loved us and set us free by his blood. God, I pray that you would help us to be zealous for your glory. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to evangelize those who have no religious system or think that they don't. Help us to evangelize those who have other religious systems that are not, not, not Christ, not the point. God, I pray that you would, um, Lord, that your glory and your grace would be known more and more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.